0: G'day guys, Tom Craig here. Welcome to my podcast, The Help Side. Now, The Help Side is a term in hockey that refers to the other side of the pitch, away from where the ball is and the action happens. And in the same way, the aim of this podcast is to give you, the listener, an insight into the other side of elite hockey players to hear about their highs, their lows, and what makes them tick. We'll also hear about the journey they went through from having fun in the backyard to playing out their dreams on the world stage. So whether you're a player, a coach, a coach, an umpire, a parent, a fan, or just a fan of sport in general, I'm hoping this podcast gives you a window into the world of elite athletes and even better, encourages you to get more involved in our great sport. You can hear the chat we had last week and others you may have missed by searching The Help Side on any major podcast platform. And if you want, you can like and subscribe our page to make sure that you're up to date with the most recent episodes. Anyway, that's enough of that. Let's get to this week's guest, Trini Power is free, works into the circle. A goal here would be terrific. Oh,
1: what a fantastic finish. (laughs) Trini Power, what a time to score the goal of the tournament. The goal of the century. (laughs) Unbelievable. (laughs) Isn't that just fantastic?
0: Katrina Power is a bona fide legend of Australian hockey. A key member of the all-conquering hockey ruse of the 1990s and early 2000s. Trini went to three consecutive Olympic Games and achieved every hockey player's dream, not just once, but twice, winning gold medals at both the Atlanta and Sydney Games. A prolific goalscorer, Trini found the back of the net an astonishing 141 times for the hockey roots across a career spanning the best part of a decade. And post her playing career, Trini is continuing to score goals as a coach. She's currently the head coach of the New South Wales Institute of Sport Women's Hockey Program. And has led New South Wales to several Australian Championship titles. I think you'll agree, as hockey CVs go, Trini's is pretty hard to tell. In this interview, we reflect on what was a golden era of Australian hockey to understand the ingredients that made the hockey ruse so dominant, but also delve into why that dominance ended. We talk about the challenges of transitioning from an athlete to a coach and also get Trini's take on how the sport can do better to support women becoming more involved in coaching. As someone who has dedicated their life to hockey, Trini has an amazing insight into what it takes to succeed. But my biggest takeout from this interview is Trini's incredible passion and energy for the sport, which quite frankly is inspiring. I hope you enjoy the help side of Katrina Power OAM. Okay, we're on. I'm here with Katrina Trini Powell, uh, N-Swiss head coach and former hockey roo. Trini.
1: How is life at the
0: moment? How are things at home yeah, not?
1: not? too bad. Yeah, getting, getting used to being at home um, and finding other things to do as well. So, yes, working, um, but spending a bit more time with uh, the dog, getting him fitter. Um, but I'm about to start, you know, reading a book, which at this time of <laughs> year is pretty unheard of.
0: What's it going to be? Is it going to be a fiction or a non-fiction or self-help?
1: Or non- it is a legacy. James Kerr, ah. so yeah, a bit of a All Blacks uh, story. So I'm really looking forward to getting
0: into that. That one's definitely doing the rounds in the hockey circles. I've had right. four or five people recommend that to me.
1: Okay, okay, well, I'll let good. you
0: know. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So pleasure having you on the show. Yeah, episode four. So we've been rolling so far. But we're gonna we're gonna go right back to the start. Um, you've obviously had a very six, su- successful career as a player and as a coach um, and we're gonna go right back to where that all started. In Canberra.
1: Yes, Canberra. Yes, yes the backyard is actually where it all um, started literally. because um, yeah, my, ha- my family was really involved in hockey.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it was my dad's side. Uh, my uncle, uh, he was really close to being picked to play for Australia as well. Um, and, of course, well, not of course, but he's much younger than my dad. So we used to go out and watch my uncle um, play first division in Canberra quite regularly, on grass, obviously. But it was a really big family thing because my grandparents would be there to watch him play. Um, obviously me and my two sisters, mum and dad. But my cousins would be there as well and we would just play we probably watched less of the hockey than what we did you know mucking around in those early days and then as I got older I watched the hockey a bit more but hockey was family family is hockey they are intertwined and I, I cannot separate them I haven't been able to ever um and still can't it's still you know I'm when I turn up to do my job at national championships my nieces and nephews are there Um, they're playing in these competitions and uh, then you know my parents will be there to watch them so hockey is is really family for me and the backyard was where it all started.
0: Yeah to the backyard now your sister Lisa was also a very successful hockey brew. at what stage did it start becoming a little bit competitive between you?
1: (laughs) I'm going to say right from the start. <laughs> um, certainly I, uh, obviously, I, well, I'm younger than Lisa and uh, hopefully she hears this. I'm much younger than Lisa. Um, and uh, we would uh, play in the backyard, but whatever she wanted to do, uh, or whatever she did, that's what I wanted to do. So um, we've got a younger sister again as well. So the three of us would play in the backyard Um, And it would actually be Lisa and myself versus my younger sister, Shelley. She was actually a much better hockey player at that point than the two of us. She was the defender. She was the tackler. Um, She could hit the ball really well. Um, So it wasn't just Lisa and I that were competitive. It was my younger sister um, as well. And, yes, we would play for hours. We had a sloping backyard. We had goals that were, you know, between the footpath and the tree um, and then painted on the side of the garage Um, wall and so yeah we'd play until either mum would call us in for dinner or dad would come out of the garage and yell at us for banging that ball against the against the garage wall too much so yeah it it started from there and the club then that we played for was the same club that my dad was involved with um, and that my uh, uncle played with Um, And because then my dad wasn't happy with uh, the club that Lisa had started playing with, he decided to start the junior girls um, part of the club that I'd, uh, well, had always then played for. So in Canberra, I only ever played for for one club, St. Patrick's Hockey Club, and they're still our family club at home in Canberra.
0: Right. Now, I have an older brother and a younger sister and my old man also built us some goals out of the back. And I can tell from experience that often games ended in tears and with, with, the, with hockey sticks and balls flying around, there was often a fair bit of blood spilt.
1: Oh, it was a bit crazy. And also then who would have to go and get the ball when it went over <laughs> into the neighbour's yard? That was probably one of the biggest fights, you know. Well, no, it was a deflection off Lisa's stick over into the yard. She has to go and get that. Not me, that's not my responsibility. Oh, and yeah, almost fisticuffs, that's for, that's for sure. Yes, a couple of injuries, but yeah, a lot of fights. <laughs>
0: and did your sister's hit ever come into backyard hockey, or was the space just too confined? Because I can imagine that'd be something pretty intimidating to oh, she's still going oh, really. to
1: go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's how the, the banging noise and the ball going over the back fence was uh, a bit of a, a bit of a problem. But, you know, we, we'd still claim six and out. That's not a goal. It's a save. So that's the main thing then. <laughs> okay.
0: And then to, to playing hockey with the club, did all three sisters play together at any stage?
1: Only a couple of times. Uh, Lisa left Canberra pretty early to go to Perth. Um, Pretty much she finished year 12 and then um, went. So she was 17, I was 15, just playing first division with her. And then, yeah, my younger sister was 13. So we didn't get to until there was one point in time where, oh, I suppose a couple of years later, I'd gone to um, Perth. And so, yeah, Lisa and I were both back. Uh, then training for some national champs under 21s or opens, not sure where. Yeah, we finally did all get to play together in the one the one club team. So it didn't happen very often. Um, yeah. Obviously, Lisa and I played hundreds of games together, mm. um, but less that we got to play with um, Shelley as well. A bit of a shame, but she's the one that's still playing. Yeah, it yes. does.
0: It, it it does tend to happen once once. Um... You know, we moved to Perth. We, we don't get back to play for our home clubs too often, but was that a pretty special moment, lacing up all three sisters in the same team? And did you win...
1: Uh, yes and yes, there was a protest put in because we were of course, all playing. Of course. Yep. Yes, that's common. That's just the normal way of things, um, because we did win. And I don't think the club had been particularly doing that well at the time. And so then, when Lisa and I were back, um, yeah, that changed the tide a little bit. Um, so yes, protests, and we did win. Um, and it was it was quite special. I think my parents really um, really enjoyed it. So yeah, it was good. It was good. But it is a shame that yeah, players these days don't get back as often as what we used to the the calendar has just the international calendar has Mm. changed so much yeah that it just doesn't make it possible anymore which is a bit of a shame
0: it is a shame and so with Lisa already moved to Perth your journey uh into the Hockey Roos outfit wasn't wasn't linear either it seems to be the way but you had a little bit of adversity starting out just trying to break into that team can you tell us about that
1: yeah, well, I, I had a couple of knee reconstructions <laughs> before that. I can still remember them both happening. I think they were two two different things, really. Um, One just running in a straight line and then the other one actually dragging the ball. But I think um, that there was always something wrong, that there was always going to happen. And um, once, I always believe that once they were screwed back in place, then that was, That was it, and it was, luckily enough. I know um, there are plenty of people that go through the same knee twice. I just had each knee done once. So I convinced myself that, oh, well, they're screwed back into place now and that's going to be the end of it. It was really easy to um, just brush over rehab, but even now, I mean, that's a long time ago now, but um, I still remember how hard it was just the trudge of it and um because I was when I did my first one I was 18 and then I came back well after the regular 12 months and I then started playing for about six months and then I um, did the other one so I'd pretty much done both knees before I played a junior world cup Mm. Um, so it was tough but i also didn't have to do it you know in perth in front of everyone i always feel really um uh sympathetic to those that have to do their rehab watching Everyone else do what they want to be doing. Mm. I find that still to this day really hard as a coach to go, oh no, you have to turn up to training. Like, mm, for 12 months, really? No. Go away, get yourself sorted, stay connected. Um, you, you're working with the medicos, absolutely. But maybe at, at the level that I coach at, not present um, every day. I just, I've got a lot of respect for the national players that are going through that and turn up every day, watch. What they want to be doing. I think that's that's really hard, and it, it builds resilience. I've got no doubt that uh, my injuries um, helped me to become the resilient player that I, I think that I, I did become. So, I'm a big believer in um, the fact that you can't have all the highs if you don't go through the lows. They, they won't be highs if you haven't had to pay some kind of price for them, if you haven't had to work really hard to get there, it's not worth anything to you. So I, uh, it's made me in a real believer of, well, you cannot have the highs if you don't, or are not prepared to go through the lows. It's just not possible.
0: And speaking of highs, so that was a pretty extended period of, of low, I guess, working away, trying to get your body right to, to make that, that debut as a hockey route. But, The team you were breaking into wasn't just any team. I mean, that was probably one of the best sporting teams Australia has ever had. And you've got to front up and and barrel your way into that on on two knees. Um, They've just been redone. (laughs) How'd that feel?
1: It was um, difficult. Um, And I think because at the start, I was complacent with where I was at. So I... My belief is that I made the squad just on my natural talent. I made the team because I decided I really wanted it and worked hard for it. So I turned up to Perth and, yeah, I was probably 22 at that point um, and didn't know what hard work was. Mm. I didn't know. So I'd already been through two new reconstructions. You would think you would understand what hard work is by that stage, but I definitely did not. And preparing, well, I didn't prepare for Perth. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. There weren't as many VAAs as there there are now, which I think is a real um, attribute and a a great advantage to players coming through these days to get a taste of it, to know what it's kind of like to go back and be able to work harder to then know what you're going to face. But, yeah, I had no idea. And so I just tripped along for a little bit you know, showed up when I needed to. It was like, I don't know, maybe it's going to uni. You know, you go and you're face-to-face and that's it. And when I wasn't there, I didn't really think about it, Mm. Um, which is is maybe um, a bit too harsh. Of course, you'd definitely think about it, but I didn't understand how to really make the next level. Um, And it wasn't until I worked out that I wasn't going to make the next level um, if I didn't change what I was doing uh, that until that point I was just... Well, I was wasting my time. Yeah. And I, I remember the time that I realised that it was a, um, oh, you know, a real, real moment of clarity. Of okay, end of it was the end of 1995. The major tournament for that year was Champions Trophy, um, and I didn't make the 18 to go. And not that I really expected to go, I was hoping to go. That's it, hoping to go. Um, 18 goes oh well there's only going to be 16 go to the olympics in what eight months time or something so i was like wow i am really well outside of this and i'm wasting my time doing what i'm doing so i i changed one thing uh, which was my decision to run work hard and get fit so that one thing then that i changed led to other things it helped me to eat better you know, why am I wasting all this energy and running and doing something that I, I didn't like and I still don't particularly like just running. I'll run all day, if you put a hockey stick in my hand, but going out there just pounding the pavement, not something that I enjoyed. So I, first of all, made myself do that, made myself work hard, set targets, set goals to be able to improve. Um, but I ate better to help me to be able to do that. Um, I found that I could do more. So the better I ate, the fitter I was, the more I could do, the harder I could work in the, in the gym. So it was like this perpetuating um, piece that this one action rolled into other things that helped me to become an actual athlete, not a hockey player. I think I was already um, loved playing hockey, had a natural ability, natural instinct. I wasn't an athlete. So until I changed that part, I was never going to make it. So I put a time limit on it. I said, right, I'm going to have a real crack at this. I'm going to honestly have a go. So once the Atlanta team is picked, I can go, right, well, I gave it my best shot. I'm still not good enough. Well, I tried. I can walk away. I can live with myself. But I, I think if you don't actually and honestly put yourself out there and be prepared to fail, you'll never know how good you could have been and you won't be able to live with that when you're, when you're older and you, and you look back. So um, that, that change of, oh, I don't know what it was, change of mind, that clarity. Um, yeah. It sounds like a
0: lifestyle, like a real lifestyle change, like living, living what you wanted yeah. to be instead of yeah. just, you know, part-time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I changed a lot of things at that point that I still um, don't do. You know, I was a big lover of simple things, butter, cream-based sauces. Mm. Um, you know, I would I would eat McDonald's. I would drink. Um, there was a lot of things that I changed at that point that I already knew weren't good for me, but I didn't know how much better I could be without them. Mm-hmm. So there's still plenty of things that I do that are absolutely life-changing, you know? Yeah. So, Yeah. yeah. It was an important period of time for me.
0: Yeah. And just for reference, a VAA is something where um, athletes from interstate will come into the national program and train for a couple of weeks. That's right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's just a little bit of a snapshot of what goes on. It gives the national coaches, I think, an opportunity to see players in that environment as well. So it's twofold. I think it's great for the athletes to get that exposure, but I think it's great for the national coaches to see other athletes in that environment as well.
0: For sure. And did you did you ever have anything like that, or were you just thrown straight into the Lions' den? Was a Rick? Was Rick in charge at the time?
1: He Rick he came in, and when he was first the national coach, I was part of his first squad. Right. Um, so yeah, I did go to Perth one time before that um, for a training week. Um, yes, uh, it was very quick uh and yeah i i didn't get enough i didn't take enough out of it Mm. um so yeah i think that's a, a message for anyone listening that wants to head to perth and get that opportunity you have to take it as exactly that it's an opportunity and take 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 it's a resource that is open to you take what you can get out of it so yeah
0: it sounds a lot like the the culture of the hockey roofs at the time um, you said that you didn't make the team uh, for the Champions Trophy, and it was it was a bit of a scary thought, missing out on that Olympics. But the culture must have been quite strong, in that you either lift to our standard, or you're going to be left behind.
1: Yeah, I tell you, one of the things I did was um, I, I also sat down and um, I wrote this thing that was uh, started with, or might have been the key thing that was make them take you. So I decided that rather than just just skimming, just getting into, you know, position number 15 or 16, that that wasn't actually what I was chasing, that by having this mantra war that was make them take you is that I could imagine um, Rick and the rest of the selectors sitting down, okay, let's, you know, let's pick this team, mm. okay, who first? Oh, well, we can't go to the Olympics without training, yeah. bang. Number one or, you know, in that top group of, okay, well, that's not one we need to discuss, she's in. So it was beyond just trying to break from what was I, I don't know, from 20 to 24, there was 20 of us, 24 of us, um, to get to 16. That, that wasn't what I was aiming for because you're right, they're a bloody good, they were a bloody good team. Mm. So I also didn't want to get in there and not be good enough for the team. So I decided that if I was going to be um, improving my fitness and playing better and harder, running harder and faster than I ever had before, that I was going to really lift my game. So if I was going to lift my game, I was going to force other players to lift theirs to come with me. So if I did that, the team would be better for it, even if I was still at the bottom. Mm. And if I wasn't. I would be in the Olympic team. It was like, a, well, there's nothing to actually yeah. lose here. Um, sure. So, yeah, it was the first time I realised that I put um, the team really and honestly ahead of myself that, yes, I want to go to the Olympics and I'm going to do all that I can to get there and be part of this good team, but if I don't get there, then I'm going to make everyone else be um, better in the process. Mm. And so, yeah, by the time we got to the Olympics, the, the team was on a run of like, I think it was in the 20s, between 20 and 30 international game wins yeah. in a row.
0: I think it was 31, I think, 31. just doing some, some research before. <laughs> I think so. Please let me know if I'm wrong anyone.
1: Anyway, yeah, but. no, and they'd won the World Cup. Like, um, yeah, I'd, I'd missed out on the World Cup. Um, and, yeah, they were on a roll. Um, And I didn't want to go there. One of my fears was was that the team was picked four weeks out from uh, the Olympics. Uh, And uh, my biggest fear then after I got picked, actually, I had two fears. My first one was that when I would ring Women's Hockey Australia, as they were at the time, and you would ring and you were only allowed to find out about if you had made the team, And my biggest fear was that I would say, like, mumble, Katrina Powell. Mm. And they would just hear Powell. And they would look down the list and go, oh, there's a Powell. Yes, you're in. And it would be Lisa. And that I would find out a couple of days later that I wasn't actually in the team that they'd made a mistake. Mm. So that was my fear, number one. And number two was that we would go to the Olympics, the team would play well, and we would win a medal. That's like shouldn't really be a fear but it was that I would stand on the dice and not feel like I deserved it that this team you know that I just jumped on this bandwagon this team would win and that I would feel like I hadn't contributed so it really spurred on my training I wasn't one who got selected and then complacent um, because I'd been selected it was well that's only one piece of the task done. The task is to play well, as good as we can at the Olympics, and to make the final game on this day, be playing at this time. You know, we barely mentioned going for gold. Everyone knew, but this is the game we wanna play in. If we're playing for gold and silver, we give ourselves the best chance. Um, So yes, I was concerned and and that was my motivation. I, I have to be worthy of this team even. So, yeah, that, that was the motivation for training beforehand. And then, yeah, to stay the course, stay focused, you know, once you hit the Olympic Village and all the distractions come in. Job, yeah. to, job to do.
0: Yeah. Um, that sounds like an incredibly powerful attitude. Do you think it was shared by most people in that team?
1: Yeah, I do. Mm. Um, I think there were definitely a number of athletes in that team who had come fifth in Barcelona and that hurt. Like, I could still feel that. They... They wanted to get that back. I think I wanted to help them for sure. Um, But they were dead set on that not happening again. It is once every four years, as we all know. And so to let it slip through your fingers once, you cannot have that happen again in in your career. And
0: that was was an incredibly good team that came fifth too, right? Like they won gold in the Olympics before and they won gold the Olympics after. So that was a real blip in the radar.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and um, they're definitely um, devastated. There's a lot of change, obviously. Um, uh, coach uh, Brian Glencross um, went out, and obviously Rick Charlesworth um, came in, uh, and as usual, number of players change over. Um, but yeah, there was enough still there wanting to make sure that uh, yeah they uh, got the job done. Mm. Um, but same again, even though Rick was still the coach uh, heading into Sydney, there was still a lot of change. He was really, um, well, I already thought he was um, a great innovator. So we were the first uh, team in hockey to go to the bodysuits. Um, we really um, worked really hard. The um, offside rule went out after the 96 Olympics. Um, the interchange versus substitution had already um, happened. So we, were, we already felt, well, I felt like Rick had already pushed us to the top of the game and pushing the game forward. Um, and so we did it again after Atlanta, changed our structure, changed athletes. It wasn't just through retirement. It was not, you're not gonna fit the new way we're playing. Um, so yeah, there was always change. We were always kept on our, on our toes. And I think that's how we went back to back. So that sustainability, that, you know, it's, it's well, there are plenty of stats out there, I think, that it's, you know, easier to win uh, one world championship than it is to go back to back. You just don't see that very often. And with Olympics being four years apart, it's really not common uh, to, to do that. And I think that that change, innovation, the drive of the players and the coaching staff To always improve the knowledge, fitness, um, structures, whatever it was, all of it was turned on its head. And we're starting again. What fits now? What works now with the rules, with the players, um, with how we want to play, our style, let's let's go forward again. And we really pushed it. It felt like we are pushing it for a good six years, really making sure that women's hockey was way ahead of where we left it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I want to know what that looked like. So day-to-day at training, um, how did it look? Was it was it something that you thought about every day, or was it yep. like checkups every month, every tournament? You'd think back on it, or was it like no, nah, every day we're doing this?
1: There was not much thinking back. There was reviewing and feedback for improvement. There was not much patting on the back. Mm. There was not celebrating minor tournaments at all. That's not yeah. You know, that doesn't mean anything. That's just our job. Turn up every day. You're competitive every day. Um, I loved it. I'm super competitive. Um, and every training was a competition. Every selection was a competition. And so molding those two things together of individual competitiveness but still playing as a team that's a tricky area to navigate, I think. Mm. Um, I, I always felt um that Rick and the selectors always put the hockey ruse first. Um, You know, just as a CEO would, okay, the the business has to survive. Who do we need? Who do we not need? And we're ready to make the tough choices. But also that we were cared about. That's also a tough thing to have those two things happening, to have really high expectations but to actually care and care about the brand of the hockey ruse. Um, I, I think that's um, what drove us. We had a lot of pride in being part of the Hockey rooms, That's that's for sure. Um, yeah. But day by day, it was competitive. If you were right on time, you were late. You were late. Um, I remember cutting across the back in my car um, before the car park was out the back of the Perth Hockey Stadium, out the back of Field 2, cutting across this dirt track that was out the back there to get into the car park to race into the stadium to make sure that I was 10 minutes early. Like, not on time. You are late. And someone would tell you, you know, if you didn't go around the flags when we were running around the field, mm mm-mm, Nah, you don't do that. Get around the flag. Mm. So yeah, we were. Um, it was a really strong culture. Some something was pretty harsh, and at times it probably was really harsh, yeah. but it worked for us.
0: It, it does worked. sound like an incredibly intense environment. Did it ever border on uh, oh, maybe maybe welfare should come first a little bit here? Or was <laughs> it <laughs>
1: There were times when there was tears, but mm. that's still, um, you know, that still happens in any environment, it's because you're tired, you're anxious, fatigued, stressed, there's selections happening, you're injured, you're worried about your injuries. There's still all of all of that, that stuff happening. Um, and there were times when it boiled over, no doubt, it was probably um, a bit too much. And there were people that went by the wayside Mm. as well. And I assume that some of that is um, not just about performance, that it's about, no, I can't keep this this pace up. But there were a lot of us that could. So that's the other thing. There was a really good depth of of players from which to choose. So that kept you on your toes and kept you competitive as well. You never felt safe with Rick, that's for sure.
0: Mm. Is that a coaching philosophy that you've carried forward or...?
1: I think if you have the capacity to do that, if you've got the players to select from, um, I think we see it these days in the pro league. There are many more um, international opportunities um, as well. So bringing people in and rotating players is something that's, actually pretty, pretty modern, you know, when you could only play with your top 11 and that was it. It was really hard to break into a team. So I think we're still at that point um, in international hockey where players are given good opportunities um, to play. Um, and so we are building the depth, I think. Um, so we are doing that. Um, and, yeah, I, I agree with it. I think you have to be proving constantly that you should be the one that's playing for Australia. It's it's an honour and the coaches have to be prepared to make those tough decisions. They're not easy. I know they don't like them. I heard, obviously, not when I was playing, but um, afterwards how much Rick struggled with picking the Olympic teams in particular. He knew he was bursting someone's dreams. That's a really hard thing to do. And all you can do as an athlete is put your best case forward to be selected every day every time and there might be reasons that you're not there Um, and it might simply be rotation it might be simply well we need you to have a break but building a depth of players is absolutely required at the top level
0: yeah i guess to um in order to justify the intensity of that training environment that existed through the 90s you guys must have known that you're onto a good thing i mean you must have known you were good or else how would you how would you justify that sort of
1: Yeah, I think we did, Um, but you did also have to keep that quiet because that was also part of the culture. You know, if players are coming in and out and different positions sometimes, different selections, even for major tournaments, some of the big names got left behind. Um, And so if at any point you got a little bit ahead of yourself, then someone would be there to pull you back into your place. Um, So it was this constant drive for perfectionism Mm. you know you know the perfect game isn't out there but I'm willing to train and train hard so I can get as close as I I can to that um so yeah it was um yes pretty pretty harsh at times but um it was also very well I'm going to go back to the family piece because it is in your family that you can be really harsh with your family members at times and they still love you. You're still there, you're still welcome back. You'll have a you'll have a laugh the next day about it. So it was that kind of atmosphere. It wasn't, oh, I'm fighting with you and you're out. I'm giving you honest feedback here and mm-hmm. you better hear me because I want an Olympic gold medal and that's what this family is here to do. Yeah. So it's I also felt protected from the outside. So as much as we were harsh on each other, it's why it's like a family, that no one could come at us from the outside. No one. Um, And Rick was the captain of that. You know, he could blast us, give us a hard time, Um, yeah, kept us on our toes. But if anyone came at us from the outside, he was... uh, amazingly protective of our team as well so it felt more like a family so i don't want it to feel like we were always you know at each other's throats and driving each other we gave each other hard messages but we were allowed to not not anyone from the outside
0: yeah that's fascinating like a common shared goal that kind of united um and kept everything flowing i guess with I've got a question about high performance consistency. I asked you this, you came um, over to Perth and spoke to us in a gold medal ready program. You're part of the panel who won gold medals and were preparing the future of gold medals, I guess. Um, And I asked you about high performance consistency and that team you were in was full of very, very high performing consistent players who did it day in, day out. It wasn't just the team, it was people in their roles in that team. Um, And I was just wondering if you'd share what what you said that day and um, yeah, your thoughts on it.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think there's a, um, first of all, a training and a base that needs to be completed in order to do that. Um, I've seen plenty of athletes um, as a coach who are impatient about getting to the national team, about getting to Perth, about playing for their country. And uh, there's a, an amount of training that you need to do before you can do that, um, and the better you are at your skills, the more often you are able to reproduce that. We we all know that. Um, I, I think the driving the person next to you then is the next element that you have to be very good yourself, and then you have to help drive those around you because without that, you can't have a consistent performance either. You need everyone, a core, the majority of the group having a good. Um, a good performance consistently, and not feeling the pressure of that, of actually wanting to show what you can do. So if you've done the prep work, if you have the confidence in your skills and abilities, then the occasion doesn't stop you from enjoying that, that the chance to show what you can do on a world stage is actually what we should all be aiming for. I'm not aiming to be the um, person that can hit the ball the best. I'm aiming to be able to show my talents on a world stage under the greatest pressure. I mean, that's what high performance is. Um, So you need a core group of people being able to do that and wanting to do that. Um, And that's why the depth of players is also needed because you cannot over, you know, if you're going to be in the national team for a decade, you cannot be informed that whole period of time. So working out then the balance of well, when do I work, walk away? So the, the wellbeing piece that you spoke about, Tom, we got um, as, uh, you know, there's an end of the season. You get mm-hmm. to actually go home four weeks, rest, then we start pre-season, then you come back to Perth and train. And that doesn't happen anymore so the well-being and the balance felt wrapped up in the calendar that it's not there as much anymore so you have to find those pockets for yourself and be able to be you know getting up for international competition stepping away resetting getting up for international competition stepping away and resetting it's it's very different now it kind of got um forced on us In those days, and then the season would be um, pretty hectic, and then you step away and take a break for a little bit. So the ability to sustain that over a period of time—that's the key. It's taking those breaks as well. So there's, you know, your actual ability. There's the team's ability, and the ability to put that together well—a depth of players to make sure every team that you put on the park every given day is in form, and then stepping away balance mm. what what else have i got to do you know i've got uni i've got study i've got family i've got work i've got a career i've got to prepare for that stuff is important not just for when you finish playing hockey it's important for when you are playing hockey um we we always worked as well when we were training you know we didn't have um as as uh, much oh, I was going to say as much money, but I don't think we were that worse off. Um, Mm. It seems like we should have been that many years ago. We should have been that worse off. But, you know, I came through when the Sydney Olympics was on and we were well looked after. Um, The Australian Government, the Australian Olympic Committee, um, Hockey Australia, we were well looked after in that period of time. It felt like, again, we were innovating and ahead of it. Mm. Um, So, yeah, but it, it means that, when you do have time to do things outside of hockey, you have to make that time purposeful. That's the key. It can't be just, oh, well, I don't have training, so I'm going to sit on the couch for a couple of hours. It has to be purposeful time away. Even even as a coach, that's what I've worked out. When I am not working, I'm not just sitting around, I have to actually, right, I'm going to the beach, I'm I'm going for a walk with the dog, whatever it is, I'm reading a book, um, whatever it is, that purposeful switch off away from hockey is really important for all of us, I think.
0: Now I'm going to briefly interrupt here to introduce a feature of the show. We'll call it our Hero of Hockey segment. We know that community sport flourishes on the back of hardworking volunteers who give up their time and effort simply for the love of it. And we want to give you, the listener, the opportunity to contact us and tell us who deserves to be our Hero of Hockey for the week. Tell us who they are, what club they're from, and what they've done for the sport, and we'll give them and your club a shout out. So, get in touch via our socials, and your nominee could be chosen for the next episode. This week's Hero of Hockey is Paul Mills from Briz Hockey. Paul and his production team have worked tirelessly to bring hockey content to our screens for nearly a decade, materialising in both live game casting and hockey-related TV shows. Paul and his team have broadcasted Brisbane club hockey for a number of years as well as travelling to cover events such as the Sydney Premier Hockey League finals, the Australian Hockey League and most recently the Oceania Cup in Rockhampton at the end of 2019. Paul is friendly, affable, loves hockey and brings the same energy to every project he undertakes from televising under 11 matches right through to international events. Thanks for your service Paul, you're a legend. Now it's back to Trini who's about to give us her recipe for scoring over 140 international goals, as well as give us an insight into her transition from star player to head coach. As an athlete, when we talk about high performance consistency, I mean, look no further than your goal scoring record. You scored in 56% of your 252 games for the Hockey Roos, and that figure jumped to 66% across your Olympic representation. So you scored four out of six games every Olympic Games, which is pretty amazing. Um that's a fun stat. <laughs> yeah, this is a fun stat. But that's incredible. So when you talk about, um, I guess, to paraphrase, the chance to express yourself on the biggest stage, knowing that you had that preparation down pat, was it yep. still scary for you going to Olympics, knowing that you were such a key part of that Hockey Roos forward line that you had to score? Or how was that?
1: Well, I think that was uh, the key going into Atlanta was that I didn't think that. So I was just doing my job. I didn't have any of that on my shoulders. You know, Jackie Pereira, she has that on her shoulders at that time. You know, I'm playing with one of the players that I looked up to when I was young. So I didn't I didn't feel that pressure. Just what I put on myself to contribute, That that was all. But I loved scoring. I loved mm. scoring goals and I loved that i got to i was really lucky i got to play in front of some really amazing players midfielders and defenders that were giving me fantastic balls or um fantastic goals to simply finish off all i had to do was be in the right place at the right time and that was one of my my strengths i wasn't well i played up the front so i your tackling is probably really fantastic, Tom. But <laughs> yeah. mine, mine as a striker was not, um, not the best. My individual skill level was not brilliant. I wasn't beating players one-on-one. I left that to other players. I hung around the goals. I was prepared to dive. I was brave. I could read the patterns and how things were going to unfold. Um, so leading was probably one of my strengths. Manipulating defenders was one of my um, strengths. So given that stuff, I then love to put the ball in the back of the net. I, I, I love giving defenders a hard time um, that um, I wanted to show that I could outsmart them. It wasn't necessarily outplay them. I love doing that. But, well, I'm craftier than you are. Um, and when you've got Alison Annan running through the midfield making passes or... She having shots and the goalie making saves and you jumping on rebounds. Um, yeah, my, my job was made really very easy for me.
0: Mm, mm. We're going to shift to, uh, you You obviously went to three Olympics. Um, as I said, scoring 12 goals across those three Olympics, which is just incredible. But you finished in Athens and the results weren't as, weren't as good as, as Atlanta and Sydney. Of course, they were a pretty high bar being a part of that team but did you feel a noticeable shift between the success in the lead up to you know atlanta sydney and then through to athens i mean could you see it sounds bad but the writing on the wall could you see that playing out or
1: it was it was different yes um i felt like you know some of the things that were spoken about weren't necessarily in place for athens there wasn't the same depth of, um, players that were around there was a majority um, retirement after Sydney um, I think also the intensity of um, well Atlanta and Sydney it was then maybe time to take a bit of a breath as as well I think I've got that sense around the place but it didn't then amp up prior to the Olympics enough for my liking it's like if you let things slide a little bit it's like culture if you let things go a little bit then all of a sudden you're where you don't want to be Mm. Um, and I felt I felt that happen a little bit and then it was too hard to get it back so I was all for a little bit of okay well let's just turn it down a notch that's okay we couldn't turn the notch back up um, so that was difficult and then the depth of players is not there then to put more pressure on the players that are a bit too too relaxed and, and thinking maybe this will just all happen again. It's uh, Well, it's the same as I mentioned about the knee reconstructions. It's easy to gloss over that stuff and go, oh, yeah, well, I had to do knee reconstructions and came out the other end and I played and I was fine. Oh, yeah, we trained for two Olympics and we went to Atlanta and went to Sydney and won a gold medal and everything was fine. You don't get to see if you're not intimately involved in it, how hard it is, how hard you work, how much you have to do, how how many decisions you make around making that choice to put everything towards winning an Olympic gold medal. It's hard. Mm. Um, And so I don't think that players coming in really appreciated that hard work and what it had been um so yeah it was really then it was a it was a difficult time we still had a good team we had good players in that team um and we only just missed out on making the um semis but yeah it's the same as the barcelona team you know you go there with high expectations you don't quite make it and it's a goal difference um that doesn't get you through and all of a sudden it looks you know horrific um which obviously isn't necessarily um the case but it was really um, disappointing mm. and it, it took me a little while to get over it because I then I had really high expectations. I'd only been to an Olympics where we'd won gold medals. That's, <laughs> that's just what you do. Um, it can be un- an
0: unfair comparison to a lot of people.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it definitely, definitely is. So it took me a little while to get over it and think back over my whole career to be really um, proud of, of what I'd done um, and proud of, uh, what I got out of being involved in hockey at that level which wasn't necessarily medals it wasn't necessarily winning it was about how much more resilient I was it was about uh, all of those things that you learn from being involved in elite sport about punctuality about I can't just um, not finish something that I've started. If I start something, I do it to the best of my ability if it's that worthwhile. That, um, yeah, it's so many lessons um, that I learned during that period of time that I'm really grateful for, like to my teammates um, and to my coaches. Hockey in general, how fantastic do we get to um, travel overseas normally, maybe not at the mm-hmm. moment, Um, and to represent our country and to play in Olympic Games. It took me a little while to get over Athens to then come out the other end and go, oh, my God, look look at what I got from from being involved. I'm just incredibly lucky. I I mean, how lucky is it to be part of a fantastic hockey team when we have a home Olympics? I mean, I got to win an Olympic gold medal in front of a home crowd. That is just sometimes I can't even believe that it's actually happened. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I feel incredibly lucky, but yeah, Athens was, yeah, a lot of learnings. Um, yeah. In a, in a different, different way.
0: We're going to move on to your coaching in a moment, but just with Athens. So it sounds like you're saying with um, Atlanta and Sydney, it was an incredible amount of hard work. It was the sum of small parts, basically those gold medals, you got what you deserved. Whereas with Athens, a lot of those things were missing and. Even though sport, it's often like, you know, a mistrap that can decide whether you make the semis or not make the semis. It sounds like you're saying that you weren't at the same level as you were and you probably didn't deserve to win that gold medal. Is that a fair assessment?
1: That's probably fair. I think we deserve to make the semis. I Mm. think we were really um, unlucky not to make the semis. We were good enough to do that. Um... Yeah, I, I I don't know if the gold medal was on the cards. I I don't think you ever go to an Olympics thinking, oh, it's not on the cards. Well, not as mm. a hockey team, you don't, yep. um, but that's the goal. Um, but we would have been playing well uh, you know, out of our skins and other teams not playing well for that to happen, I think. Sure. But uh, I think we deserve to be in the in the semifinals, that's for yep. sure.
0: Yep, okay. Into coaching now and you're probably the only instance of anyone I think to go from one year playing for the hockey ruse to the very next year you were the assistant coach is that right or
1: I did a couple of years as a um, an AIS scholarship coach right so just as you know back in those days they were all AIS athlete scholarships um, they had coaching ones as well so I was a, co- a scholarship coach for a couple of years so um, yes I pretty much finished I worked for Hockey WA for a number of months Mm-hmm. um and then uh, yeah came back uh yeah it must have been 2006 and seven as a scholarship coach that might be about right
0: right yeah so throughout your playing career were you always thinking like were you loving the analytical side of things with with the game and did you like thinking through it and were you thinking that coaching was a path that you'd go down
1: not initially not at all um and i think that's one of the other things that i got out of hockey um, is uh, that whole self-belief, the the self-confidence. When I was at school, I was completely shy. So I'm naturally like an introvert and I'm quite happy spending time on my own. Um, And so when I was younger and starting to play, there's no way that I would have considered myself as coach material. I I wouldn't even speak to a big group um, like that. Um, Obviously, it played over a number of years. And so by the time I don't know, it was probably only after Sydney and into um, Athens that I started thinking that I um, could coach afterwards and that I had um, something to offer. Um, I think I, I do enjoy analysing the game. I do enjoy pulling it to pieces and working out um, what's going on. I did a couple of scouting roles uh, then in Beijing and London for the, for the Hockey Roos, which I really um, enjoyed. Um, But I think I enjoy the culture side of things, of getting the team to play well together um I, I really enjoy being a mentor in the n-swiss space so yes i'm a coach but i'm not the one that in the end would determine their destiny that's for the national coach to decide and so throughout their careers yet to be a bit more of a, a mentor as you're coaching as well so here's what's going to happen when you go to perth don't expect to be you know um the top of the wuzzle when you get there you're doing well here in sydney but you know, almost almost expect to be the worst player in Perth. That's you know, otherwise you would have already been there. So just real uh, realistic expectations and know that you've got to work bloody hard. So I think there's lots of things that I can um, offer to um, athletes that go beyond the um, team coaching. Mm. But I do I do enjoy that as well. Definitely enjoyed. Um, well, I, I think that first year of. Um, well, the transition into Hockey One that had the different rules and playing around with that stuff, I, um, I love that. It just made me uh, turn the game inside out again. You know, look at it a different way. What, why is my belief in this area? Well, does that, you know, is that still the same now that the rules have changed? It made me question a whole lot of things all over again. Um, and so I loved that transition year when there were lots of changes to the, to the rules to just rethink everything and to then, I suppose, be able to then communicate that with the athletes. So it's one thing to be able to come up with a strategy and a plan, but unless the athletes are able to do that on the field, then that is absolutely useless. So I think that's one of the things that I'm most proud of in my coaching career is all of those changes have half the team being the national players turn up the day before um, and then be able to play this, this competition and put something on the park that, yeah, I was really proud of mm. um, so it's it's all of it's all of those things they're all interlinked you can't have one thing without the other you can't just be good at coaching skill um, yeah. in my role you can't just be good at team coaching you can't just be aware of the cultural requirements of the group you have to care about the athletes but also you have to have high expectations because otherwise when you pass them on to birth they're not going to survive Mm. so there's, there's a lot that goes into it and I, I think that's what I love about it there's so many aspects to it
0: yeah so in your role that's that's an interesting point that I want to pick up on there so you there are a lot of different elements to your role as the New South Wales Institute of Sport women's head coach I mean you're not just a tactical coach because you don't you're not coaching a, a, a team per se that goes away and competes I mean you're you're an administrator and a manager and you're dealing with people who have Sometimes hockey is not their biggest priority in their life, depending on what stage of um, of their career they're in. But it's a it's a really complex role that you run.
1: Yes, it is. And the, the use of the word manage is a much better um, term that uh, it speaks to the majority of the role. We definitely are coaching. We definitely get to coach teams during the year. Uh, we are managing athletes, managing a program and managing the succession planning of the hockey roos and um, uh, other coaches for the the kookaburras. Um, So I think it's a really important role and I take it really um, seriously. Um, But I also have to check myself sometimes as well that you know, what was my dream of playing for the Hockey Roos and winning Olympic gold medals isn't everyone's. Mm. And if you don't have that dream, you cannot make someone have that dream. So that's, mm. that's probably the, one of the things that I struggle with when athletes say, you know, I just I don't think it's for me. I'm not driven. <gasps> what? <laughs> How can you not want this? <laughs> so I've learned, I've learned to deal. Um, but then, yeah, help those that do want it, help them to, to navigate the pathway in Australia.
0: Yeah. And I guess with what you were saying about the strengths of that um, Hockey Roos team during the 90s was, was the depth. And that's kind of where your role comes in, providing that top layer with the depth that I guess you're responsible for, for bringing through.
1: Yeah, it is. And it's really quite a um, an exciting task. I love um, working in New South Wales, because there's so many um, hockey players out in the regions, and you can just not have seen someone for a while. And then bang, all of a sudden, you know, you see this um, little player running around who's uh, pretty talented. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, that, that spark of oh oh this one there's there's a good little one let's let's see what 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 she's like and um, how she progresses and um, to see if we can uh, get them to play for Australia I mean it's just uh, it's exciting it's it's fun and um, yeah seeing the hockey brews come back to that success again I think that's what uh, everyone on the women's side of the program within Australia is working towards
0: yeah I'm going to pick that up a little bit later but. Real quick, so you, you're in a privileged position whereby you played for the national team for, you know, a long, long time. And then often what we see in elite sport is uh, once someone retires, it can be a real, like it's a complete shift of lifestyle and it can take quite an impact um, mentally. You kind of, you jump straight into coaching and you're around high-performance the whole time. So that intensity never really left your life, I guess. Is that how it felt? Do you think that helped ease the pain of retirement or?
1: Yeah, I really think it did. I I struggled for a little bit there with the, I think like many athletes do like the, who am I, if I'm not a hockey player Mm. piece, I think that's really hard. I hadn't um, studied whilst I was playing. I'm studying now, Mm. uh, playing catch up, but I regretted not um, just, you know, knocking off a a sub, you know, uh, a degree at that point over all that period of time. So I hadn't um, given myself enough of a future um, beyond. Hockey that was something that I was driven to do i didn 't have anything that I was really looking at doing so that yeah. made it harder um, sometimes I tell my athletes I still don 't know what I want to do mm. um, but yeah I found getting then into the coaching space uh, helped me with that that transition i didn 't use it for the transition um, but I felt like I had something to something to give. I didn't retire from hockey because I didn't want to be involved in hockey anymore. It was because I, let's go back to the fitness piece. I didn't want to run anymore. I couldn't do it. Um, My body was starting to pack it in. Carbs were bad. So I couldn't sustain the training, the fitness anymore, but the team being involved in um, hockey at a high level, elite sport. Yeah, I knew I, I knew I wanted to be involved in that. Mm. I mean, some mornings I get up early and I I go, oh my God, what am I still doing this for? You know, mm. I'm getting up early to go to hockey training. What am I doing? But that is not very often. Mostly I get up and think, all right, how lucky am I that I'm still doing this? I I worry that I will run out of energy. I think just as players need um, the energy and drive, coaches are exactly the same. And I worry that the way I felt, you know, before the Athens Olympics, I knew my time was up. I was kind of hanging on. I knew I wouldn't be able to to go anymore. So I, I, I wonder if that's what happens to coaches. You know, you've got this energy, passion, drive, Oh, do you just one day wake up and go, oh, God, I can't do this anymore? But I know that that's not yet. That, that's, that's all I know. It's not yet. I feel really privileged um, that I have the job that I do and get to coach the athletes that I coach. And I also get to be involved every now and then with the national program and then also with some of the younger athletes coming through um, the Hockey New South Wales pathway as well.
0: Mm. And uh, Trini, you are the head coach of of N Swiss, and um, there aren't too many women at the at the peak of coaching in in hockey, in particular. And that's probably true throughout all levels of hockey. Um, you know, there are some notable notable exceptions like Alison, um who's the head coach of the Dutch team and the assistant coaches of the Hockey ruse But um, yeah, do you what do you what do you put that down to? And do you kind of see a future where more women follow that path down to coaching?
1: I really hope so. I think one of the difficulties for women is that they retire and then they use that time to have children. And then I think they feel like it's too hard to come back, that the game has passed by. It is changing all the time. Uh, and then that they don't feel comfortable coming back to the game. And I think that that's something that we need to watch and pay attention to and mentor um, women that want to be involved in coaching and find a way to get them back. Um, There are some really fantastic female coaches involved. You mentioned the national assistant coaches um, and obviously um, Stacky Strange, she's the the VIS coach. She's, She's just had her second child Um, We've got um, Casey Soblowski in New South Wales who's doing coaching for hockey in New South Wales. So she's just back from her second child. Um, And we've got Kate Jenner who has gone back to play for Hockey Roos at the moment, but she was also coaching in New South Wales. So Mm. the, the idea is that all coaches, Hockey Australia as well, need to be succession planning for themselves as well and the more that we can encourage females to be involved the better our game will be females uh, and what they can bring and offer in the very least it is diversity For um that yeah we need to keep our females involved and find a way to make it possible for them to coach alongside having children They don't have to be the number one caregiver. There is potentially a male that helps out with that at home. There is a father of the child. And I think we have to find a way to make sure that we're getting women involved. Uh, We've seen how successful Alison Annan has been coaching um, the Dutch team, um, but she's not the only successful female coach that there has been. I I think that the time is coming where we will see a female coach of the Hockey Roos. I think it's difficult because we haven't seen a female in that space before. Um, So I think as soon as we've seen it, that that might help all kinds of other areas as well. So, yes, it's the encouragement of females to get back into um, the sport. Um, Well, if that's national players after children or if it's um, females that are already involved in lower levels and how we mentor them and support them to, to go to the next level if that's what they, what they want to do.
0: Sure. It sounds like quite a positive trajectory, trajectory I should say, at the moment.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I, I think sometimes we need to make um, adjustments to the design of our workplace which is exactly what the world is doing at the moment. We are redesigning our workplaces all over the place. For me, I'm already looking at different ways that we are going to be doing things even once we are back at training and that is what the world is doing. And so this is a much better space for women to come out of. You can work from home. So the having children piece is is not an issue and and yeah we probably the rest of us need to change the way we look at women in the workforce and um check our biases at the door
0: Mm. and you mentioned earlier about uh wanting to see the hockey roos get back to the the world beating force that they were in the 90s um I just want to talk about that a little bit I guess over the last decade or so that mantle has probably fallen to the Dutch national team um with obviously the inclusion of Luciana Amar and, and her argentinian team but the dutch have been the world standard in women's hockey for the last i don't know five or five or ten years uh what do you think it's going to take for the hockey roos to get back to to those ways is there a special ingredient or
1: well, i don't know if it's special or if it's cyclic that um that that depth of quality players has to be there There's no doubt we have quality players in the hockey roos do we have enough Maybe not to um, have that consistently good performance. We can perform well. It's maybe their consistency. And it is the consistency piece that the Dutch... Do do well. Mm. Uh, they didn't, even though they have bought players in and out of their team. Uh, same as all we're talking about in terms of rotation of players, they do that pretty regularly. I mean, Alison came through the same school of being um, coached by Rick and developing that depth of players, rotating those players, giving players opportunities. Um, that's definitely what, what she's been doing with the Dutch group. And no one then can, can rest on their laurels, you know. Oh, I've been picked in this one team, so therefore I've got my place and now I'll just rock up and play. That, that's not, not, not the attitude. Um, so she has built a good team, a good depth of players, that are very skillful, very Mm. fit and, um, play well together. Mm. You know, you cannot just have a team of individual stars. If you cannot play well together, it doesn't matter how good your individual players are. So she's managed to put all of those pieces together. um, and they are pieces that are difficult to put together. And she has her own challenges. Uh, they've got, you know, their, their strong club system over there and, um, The access to them is um, what she's given. That's it. We've got a different structure that we're working with and so we just have to maximise that. Our ability to um, have centralised training and have those players, have you guys playing and training together all the time, I think is one of our, our key advantages and we have to maximise that to yeah to to get us back to those days but it's up to people like me to keep making sure that we have the depth of players from which the national coaches can choose
0: yeah uh and lastly i've got a couple more questions to to finish on you've obviously had a very successful career in hockey coaching playing it's taken up a, a vast majority of your life i would say um as far as years years spent go um, what is it that you do outside of hockey? You talk about having like a third place somewhere you go to switch off and that sort of thing. What are your interests out, outside of hockey? And if you didn't have hockey, where would you see yourself uh, now? I guess.
1: Oh, tough question. Tough well, question. I did um I mentioned that I'm studying and mm-hmm. I know that doesn't sound like it's, you know, some fun hobby to people, <laughs> but it's something that I regretted not doing when mm. I was playing. And so at the moment I'm only doing one unit at a time. So it's not, strenuous. um, And I'm actually enjoying what I'm learning. So I'm studying business. And there's a lot in there, obviously, about management, about leadership, Mm. all culture, all things that relate um, directly to hockey, but yes, studying outside. And so I found the gaining of knowledge um, to be quite purposeful, um, and something that I spend some time um, doing, because i enjoy it. I haven't overloaded myself with it so spending some time doing some um, study and once again I've I've formed some good habits in doing it. That's Mm. what it's all about. I've got good habits around studying and getting that um, done. Um, Obviously I uh, enjoy reading but I do like going to the beach. Mm. So In terms of having spent the majority of my life in and around hockey, mostly where I've chosen to live in any state that I've lived in has been in relation to where the hockey field is, (laughs) which I know a lot of hockey people out there that are listening to this will understand what I'm saying, that you're at the field so much you choose to live near the field, Um, which I did do when I moved to Sydney. I went inner west to be close to Sydney Olympic Park and loved it. Um, but more recently, so for the last three years, I've lived in um, Narrabeen, mm. so Sydney's northern beaches. So definitely not close to um, hockey, but close to the, close to the beach. Um, it's also where um, up here, uh, a place called Newport, is where my grandmother lived when I was growing up in Canberra, and they were our family holidays. We would drive from Canberra. To Marnie's house at, <laughs> at Newport, so it was a holiday at the at the beach. So being uh, living up here and being near the beach yeah, feels like I'm in a really good um, space to get away from hockey as well. Um, So yeah, that going to the beach, going on um, walks with my dog and my partner, um, he doesn't have anything to do with hockey. And sometimes when I start explaining things about or whinging about things, I just go, oh, forget it. So he helps me to switch off as well. Uh, he's a bit more into Formula One, which is Wrong. not necessarily, you know, of <laughs> but so now I know way too much about Formula One than I should do um, as well. Um, so it's those things. Obviously, moving back to the East Coast, I'm much closer to my um, family as well, because Lisa um, and Stuart Brothers, her husband, they've got three kids now there in Melbourne. Um, and my younger sister, um, she has a daughter in Canberra as well. So it was another reason to move back across the side of the country from Perth is to just, yeah, get, get back to family. And so I see them much more now than what I did when I was in, in Perth. Mm. As for what I would be doing if there was no hockey I'm not sure I as I said to you I I was never sure what I wanted to do I Mm. you know mulled over a few different things when I was at school but I suspect it would have been down the nursing or occupational therapy Mm. side of things Um, and uh, my mum was a was a nurse um, and my dad was an administrator so um, it wouldn't surprise me if I got into um, care in, in, in some way. I like the idea of the occupational therapy stuff because there is that, um, that side of things, but also you're coaching people to get back and you're working with them one-on-one yeah. to achieve their goals. So, yeah. Um, yeah, when I thought about your question, it, it felt like that's probably somewhere that I would have ended, ended up. I think when I was at school, I wanted to be a teacher, but that, I think that just seemed like a, you know, an easy thing to follow on to next. Um, but, you know, that coaching and teaching space got really um, close alignment piece as well. So I could have, you know, ended up as a, as a teacher. So, True. Yeah.
0: I, guess, I guess with you studying business, one can easily see the similarities between, I mean, with a semi-professional sport like hockey, as well as a business, like no one can commit their entire life to hockey without having a backup and similarly I don't think anyone wants to commit their entire life to just their work um, and I guess you, you're working in both fields trying to build a team with people who have other stuff going on on in their lives so that's that's pretty interesting um I feel like you're well you're well fit to, to succeed in that world last few questions I first want to know who the best player you've ever played with was
1: Alison Allen. She was um, very much the best. I uh, obviously played ahead of her. She was midfielder, a striker. So as soon as Alison got the ball, I knew to get ahead. That was was
0: good?
1: To just get ahead. She was, I I, I said I didn't like running and fitness stuff, but I was quick. That Mm. was what I did do. I ran out on penalty corners. Um, I was quick off the mark. She was just as quick as me when she had the ball and I didn't. So I knew as soon as she had the ball bang, she would be off the mark and gone. Um, and so that's when I know, right, I'm going to get in behind my player. She will definitely beat her player. Um, and then we've got a two-on-one with my player if she needed me, which sometimes she didn't. Um, but, yeah, she's, she's definitely the best player that I've got to
0: play with. It definitely does seem, whenever people talk about Alison Allen, it just seems like she was on another, another level. Yeah. I never really got to watch her play that much, but I've, I've watched Amar play a fair bit. And it seems like they were, they were maybe similar in the way they dominated the game. Is that fair? Or?
1: Yeah, pretty similar. I think the other thing that Alison had to her bow was goal scoring. So she's oh. still um, the Hody Roo's highest um, goal scorer. Um, she's just so far out there. So, um, yeah, she was a, she scored more goals than, than Amar, but that would be the only thing that I would pick them apart. But, hmm. yeah, she was a game changer.
0: It does sound like a bit of a two-horse race for for greatest of all time. They're definitely yeah. the two names that that float up there. Um, and yes. I guess if it was a different sport, like, I mean, basketball or anything like that, they would be kind of really dominating the, the pop culture, I guess, of, yes. of just how good they were at their sport. Absolutely. Um, okay, best player you've ever played against?
1: Oh, there's probably... A- Couple and technically, I played against Amar um, because she was young in the um, Sydney Olympics and then better again in um, Athens. But um, she wasn't at her prime when I played against her. Probably there's a really um, good German player, Britta Becker, she was very good. And I played against a Dutch defender, um, Minky Bouge, and she was just tough as all Mm. hell. And me and my competitiveness, we had a couple (laughs) of really really nice um battles so those ones that were stronger and a little bit harder Mm. to outsmart i really enjoyed the competition against those players
0: so it sounds like toughest and most enjoyable yes (laughs) yeah
1: well you want to test yourself against (laughs) the best
0: (laughs) exactly uh last question do you have any advice for either a young hockey player coming through or someone who perhaps wants to aspire towards being a coach Um, what would you say to them Either or, up to you.
1: I, I think the number one thing is to love the game. I think that there are plenty of young players who uh, want success and want it now. Mm. But I think you have to love the ride, love the journey and love being involved in hockey, and what hockey brings to you, not what you can just get out of um, hockey personally that if you're part of that broader hockey community, um, you will love the game if you invest in it um, and they will then get you to be the best player that you can be if that's what you want to do. I love hockey because it's such a good family sport. Um, And for, um, yeah, so the best advice then is, well, if if you want to achieve practice practice Mm. practice and things it's a hard game it's a Mm. really hard game hockey Um, we've had um, crossover training with netballers at one point and watching them hold a hockey stick was just (laughs) it was pretty funny Um, and then we all went over to the netball court and could actually have a game Mm. it is a game that needs to be mastered over a long period of time hockey so if you're willing to invest in hockey uh, it will give you it back in spades.
0: Sure. That's good advice. We might end it on that. Thank you very much for, for giving me your time in amongst what must be a very busy schedule trying to manage that N-Swiss team. So, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks, Tom. Cheers. Big thank you to the production team of David Moore, Tim Collier and Jimmy Stevens. If you do like the help side, please like, subscribe, interact we'd love to hear from you you can find us at the help side on twitter facebook and instagram that's it for now we'll catch you on the help side next time